Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball, and thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can get more from Milk Street by following us on Instagram at 177milkstreet, There you can find free recipes, cooking tips, videos from our world travel, plus much more. That's Instagram at 177 Milk Street. Now please enjoy the show. 
This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. It's the height of summer, which means Dan Pashman is rethinking how he eats his favorite summer foods. When it comes to watermelon, he has a new theory, a mathematical theory, that is. Here's the issue with the watermelon. A lot of people are slicing their watermelon wedges too wide. The angle at the tip should not be a 90-degree angle. Have you determined the exact angle? Um, I would say uh, 30 to 33 degrees. (laughs) Plus, Tanya Hopkins sheds light on the culinary innovators who made ice cream what it is today. James Hemmings, who was Jefferson's chef, learns the different French techniques and brings them back here. There are approximately five known vanilla ice cream recipes that he came back with. But he, it, it turns out he's not the only enslaved person of African heritage in Europe training in the culinary arts and making ice cream. First up, we consider the tomato. I'm joined now by Bill Alexander, author of 10 Tomatoes That Changed the World. Bill, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks, Chris. It's nice to be with you. A friend of mine, Barry Esterbrook, wrote Tomato Land a few years back, and I was shocked to discover something you know, which is that many tomatoes are grown in Florida in sand, <laughs> which has essentially been cleaned of all organic matter. So is that is that the main reason why I have not tasted a good tomato in a supermarket in about 20 years? Well, that's certainly part of the reason. Perhaps the main reason is that Florida tomatoes are not bred for flavor. I mean, they're bred for pretty much anything other than that. They're bred to stand up to long travel. They're bred to be picked green and turn red when they're gassed. They're even bred for such odd things as to have like squared off shoulders so that when they are sliced by the fast food companies who buy the great bulk of them, there's less loss at the top and the bottom of each slice. So let's go back and start at the beginning. Okay, so tomatoes show up in Italy in the 16th century. But what's interesting is nothing happens to the tomato for 300 years. It's an ornamental plant and people think it's poisonous. That just blows my mind. You don't see tomato sauce until the early 19th century in a cookbook in Italy. So for from 15 whatever to 1807, people are not eating tomatoes, but they have them. It just seems like an odd fact, don't you think? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and part of it was that the time that the tomatoes hit Europe was the Renaissance. And so this was a time when they were going back to, uh, you know, Roman and Greeks teaching and art and writings. Um, They also revived some ancient texts and medical practices. And and that included the works of the second century Dr. Galen of Pergamum. And and Galen was, you know, perhaps the world's first... uh, diet doctor. And he had come up with a food classification schema to keep the body's humors balanced and foods were classified hot and cold on on the one axis and wet and dry on, on the other. So this is back in the second century. But Renaissance found his writings and adopted some of these new world foods coming over and safe to say that the, the tomato did not fare well. 
when it got assigned to his hot, cold, wet, dry schema, they kind of ended up in the coldest and wettest group, sort of like a damp basement. And so, you know, for that reason, they were considered a very unhealthy food. That isn't to say that some people didn't try to eat them. But when they were eaten, it was uh, almost on a dare, the way that tourists going to uh, Japan might try, you know, the, the poisonous puffer fish. So let's jump ahead to the 40s and 50s. I read there's a connection between the Galapagos turtles and canned tomatoes. And I think it has something to do with digestion, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as, as long as tomatoes and machines have uh, existed side by side, humankind's been trying to get the machines to pick the tomatoes. And the, the challenge with that is that, unless you're very careful, when you pick tomato, it's going to come off with a small piece of the stem. And on a tomato farm, you, you can't have a sharp piece of stem, and your tomatoes would be like a, a drunken sailor swinging a, a cutlass on a, on a crowded ship. Um, well, in 1941, a dashing young botanist named Charlie Rick, who's been uh, described as a mix between Charles Darwin and Indiana Jones, joined the delightfully named Division of Truck Crops at University of California, Davis. And Charlie Rick made 13 trips to the Andes o over the years, which is where the, the tomato most likely had uh, evolved. And um, one of those trips, he went over to the Galapagos and found a small, almost a pea-sized tomato he'd never seen there. So he brought these uh, Galapagos tomatoes back, and he just couldn't get them to germinate. He tried all the, the tricks of the trade. He scraped them. He fed them to some of the local wild birds from Galapagos that he had. Uh, because sometimes passing through the digestive tract, an animal will uh, make a seed viable. And finally, he thought of the Galapagos giant tortoise, which he had seen hanging out near some of the tomato plants in uh, the islands. And so what he did was he, uh, he had a friend that had a couple in his backyard, and he sent some seeds and said, would you please feed these to your tortoises? send me the tortoise droppings back in the, in the mail, which was, of course, as illegal then as it is now. And lo and behold, um, a month later, because tortoises are slow in every regard, true to their reputations, he received some dung in the mail, and sure enough, when he planted these seeds, they germinated. These seeds uh, had an important trait. That is that instead of uh, coming off at this with this piece of stem, the tomato would separate at the next weakest spot, which was right at the uh, fruit. So, you know, next time you open a can of tomatoes from the United States, you can pretty much think of the uh, digestive tract of the Galapagos tortoise. They should put that right on the label. <laughs> So fast forward to the 1990s, you wrote that even though there are no GMO tomatoes today, it was, in fact, the first food marketed as a GMO food. So, you know, what happened? Yeah. I mean, back in 1994, the uh, flavor 
Saver was released by a bunch of self-proclaimed gene jockeys at a West Coast startup called CalGene. And um, of all the things that they wanted to do for the first GMO food, if you think about all the wonderful things that GMO crops could do in reducing famine and, you know, disease-resistant corn and so on. The first thing that they decided to do was to develop a tomato that would not rot as quickly on your windowsill. <laughs> and so they submitted this to the FDA, and it took five years for it to get approved. And in that last year, a movie called... Jurassic Park appeared. I think we all remember that. <laughs> and that that did not do wonders for that industry. What happened was that a man named Cherokee Rifkin, who was anti-GMO, arranged pickets at movie theaters showing Jurassic Park and talked about the horrible things that would happen if we ate these tomatoes in which we had messed with nature and by the time the tomato was released, there was kind of a, a little bit of suspicion. But what really killed them was that they had picked the wrong tomato. And the tomato itself, the so-called flavor saver, was just kind of a mediocre tomato. I have to ask, are there any hopeful signs for the next 10 years of tomatoes? Hmm. I, you know, <laughs> I guess not. I guess the answer is no to that one. I wish, I wish I could say there are. I mean, I, you know, to be honest with you, I think the most hopeful sign was that during the COVID pandemic, people have been buying tomato seeds and starting gardens in record numbers, and I'd say that's a that's a really hopeful sign. Yeah. Uh. Bill, thank you. Not too many words of hope, but uh, one can still look on the bright side. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. That was Bill Alexander, author of 10 Tomatoes That Changed the World. If you're still looking for an uplifting story about tomatoes, let's hear from Milk Street producer Caroline Davis, who spoke with Anna Inciardi about her pursuit of one particularly special tomato. Here's Caroline Davis. Anna Inciardi is a printmaker based in Portland, Maine. The subject of her prints? Food. Last summer I carved like a, yeah, a baguette, garlic scapes, a corn, arugula, lemons. Anna's prints often render, in vibrant color, ingredients central to the cooking of her Sicilian ancestors. So I come from a fourth-generation Italian-American family. My great-grandmother wrote a... Sicilian American cookbook that came out in like the 80s and all the illustrations are really great and there's like a wonderful photograph of her and my great-grandfather in the back and they're really cute. Recently, Anna created a few tomato prints that really took off. A pop art style grid of hothouse tomatoes, a charming print of canned plum tomatoes. These prints were incredibly popular. To track their success, Anna decided to search her work by looking up Inciardi Tomato online. So I was sitting in my studio Googling myself, because that's really important to my workday. And then this 
NCRD tomato popped up that had nothing to do with me. Well, had nothing to do with my artwork. I just immediately called my parents and, I, and my grandmother. And they had no idea what I was talking about. Instead of art, Anna had stumbled on a website selling seeds for a specific heirloom varietal she had never heard of, the NCRD tomato. Convinced she must be connected to it, Anna started digging into her Sicilian ancestry on her father's side of the family. And it turns out, she was right. I found out that the seeds were brought over by Enrico Inciardi. He changed his name to Henry Inciardi. He came through Ellis Island September 4th, 1898, with his family's tomato seeds sewn into his clothing. Henry Inciardi was a relative of Anna's great-grandfather, and he and his family settled in Chicago. Today, his Inciardi tomatoes continue to be grown in the United States, but they are increasingly rare. Only about 12 farmers still grow the variety, including one in Ohio who runs a farm called Forgotten Heirlooms. Anna decided to contact him. He saw my last name and immediately freaked out and... I sent him a few tomato prints of mine, and then he sent me 24 seeds in return. The lineage of these seeds begins in Italy over a century ago. They've traveled from Sicily via coat pockets and hemlines to Ellis Island to Illinois and now Maine. Anna and her partner planted their first round of NCRD tomatoes this year. I'm so excited to taste them. I still can't believe that I have never seen one in person. It feels like a gift that I'm getting it at this time in my life. That was Anna and Ciardi's story reported by producer Caroline Davis. On a hot summer day in mid-July, Anna finally picked her first Ciardi tomatoes, which are nearly seedless, brick red, and oblong. Anna says that they are the perfect tomato for cooking down into a rich pasta sauce and perhaps also the perfect muse for her next art print. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, an ice cream history lesson that's coming up in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread, 
It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Americans consume more ice cream than any country in the world. That's 1.3 billion gallons per year. But it took centuries for ice cream to evolve into what we know today. So right now I'm joined by food historian Tanya Hopkins. Her research into the black culinary history of Philadelphia uncovered the origins of a distinctly American style of ice cream. Tanya, welcome to Milk Street. Hi, happy to be here. So let's do a little ice cream history. Uh, it may have gone all the way back to ancient Egypt, but what we would consider ice cream, I guess, probably only goes back to Europe in the 17th century, right? Absolutely. Exactly. But then we fast forward to the 18th century and arrives here in America. And you say that the key person in bringing it over from Europe to America was Thomas Jefferson's enslaved chef, James Hemings, right? 
Yeah, I mean, the style here in America was more like a milkshake before James learns the different French techniques and brings them back here. But he, it, it turns out he's not the only enslaved person of African heritage in Europe training in the culinary arts and making ice cream. But in terms of his influence through Jefferson's table right. on the American, what becomes iconic, you know, American stuff, mac and cheese and French fries and ice cream, you know, arguably he's had the greatest influence of French trained chefs who do come here. And he was the first classically trained American chef. He just happened to be enslaved. Hmm. Th- there was this recipe that Thomas Jefferson had for vanilla ice cream. But James Hemings, you, you think, actually, was his recipe that Jefferson copied? or what? I mean, unless Jefferson was also training in the culinary arts alongside James. <laughs> it seems Yeah, unlikely. it's very unlikely that it was his recipe, as in one that he would have learned to do. Yeah, it's absolutely James Hemings' recipe, yeah. And that was true of many cookbooks in the 19th century, was that th- these were recipes from enslaved cooks, and then the recipes were published in a book by usually a white woman, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the planned or unplanned benefits of imposing illiteracy on enslaved people is that ability to transcribe and write their own recipes right. and have a sense of ownership over them or to publish them was not really viable. Some people were literate, like James actually was literate in English and in French. And we're still looking for those notebooks from his five years of culinary study in France. Hmm. So, so he was sent over by Jefferson to study for, it was five years, that, mm-hmm, that long? Mm-hmm. So, and you also said, I just want to go back to this, you said that the original recipe was more like a loose milkshake served in cups. So in other words, was there a change from that style to what we would consider ice cream now? And when did that happen? Right. No, that recipe marks the change. Oh, that was the change. Okay. And my understanding through the research that we've done at the James Hemming Society and through Chef Ashbel McElveen is that there are approximately five known vanilla ice cream recipes that he came back with and then continued to tweak and, and play with them. But all of them were about arriving at that firm, custardy, creamy, you know, style that we would recognize today. So now we get to Philadelphia in the early 19th century. Of course, Philadelphia-style ice cream, it's what most commercial ice cream is today. It's made without eggs. So how did Philadelphia become the place where this was popularized? So, yeah, Philadelphia is an interesting place because it was long a destination for free Blacks, some who had never been enslaved, some who had emancipated themselves, the most famous ones being Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. You know, it's a whole, there's a whole interesting history that's happening and, and this juxtaposition of free and enslaved people. But one of the things that connects all of them is the culinary arts is a primary occupation for a high percentage of people, like Washington's cook Hercules and James Hemings. And what happens is people who have either been brought there with enslavers or escaped there, a lot of them had these skills and these talents. Because, you know, remember, it's a time when it's not just about cookery, it's also about all the million things that go along with cookery, like butter making or preserves, all of those kinds of things. So there was a wide range of culinary skill sets that a lot of these African heritage people had, and Philadelphia just became this really interesting early gourmet scene in America. 
And so people emerge, like Augustus Jackson and, and a little later Alfred Crowley, who was the first um, African-American. We wouldn't have been called African-Americans then. He might have been called Negro or colored or black to hold a patent for the ice cream scoop. And you say throughout the 1800s, a lot of black inventors filed for and were granted patents. So I guess that's something that's been a bit left out of American history, yeah. among other things. Um, so were th- there there were a lot of people inventing things like this that we we just don't know about, or at least most of us don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, it was an, it makes sense. It's a natural extension. If you are part of many generations and you yourself have spent your life coming up with solutions to facilitate your work as a laborer, you know, that thinking naturally would lead towards inventions. And Alfred Crowley goes to work at the soda fountain places of the day and, you know, notices a high amount of tendonitis and whatever. So that was part of his solution was like to invent this device. But before him, there's Augustus Jackson who finds a way to make a very creamy style of ice cream without eggs. So Augustus Jackson comes up with this idea of taking cold custards, freezing them, eggless ice cream. But he built a business out of this, right? He became a caterer. Uh, he distributed the ice cream parlors. He actually built a yeah, business Yeah, he was already this. a caterer, but this became his specialty. And he's also yeah. known for flavors, for introducing all different kinds of flavors, some of which we still have today. But his specialty was strawberry, and which is one of my favorites, and mint which is also kind of an interesting link to the use of mint among the black bartenders who get creative with mixology very similarly to the way that some of the ice cream makers get creative with flavors. So catering was a not uncommon career if you were African-American in Philadelphia, right? There there were some very famous black caterers in Philadelphia. Yeah, the father of catering Robert Bogle was someone who escaped slavery out of the Caribbean and comes to Philadelphia. And there were guilds of caterers. They they basically were behind the development of fine dining in the Northeast, in Philadelphia, in Baltimore, in New York for over a century. It was a source of black wealth, also something we don't hear a lot about in American history, nor how that wealth was used and applied in Philadelphia to build colored schools and to fund black troops in the in the Civil War, and, and a lot of that money that the community used came from catering businesses. Does that say something to you about 19th century America, in, at least in this part of the country, the Northeast? I mean, the, our view of it now, looking back, was it actually a very different kind of society? It was, but I don't want to glorify it in any right. way, because we still know the history of this country at the right. time that these businesses are thriving— The majority of African-Americans at the time, again, not even called African-Americans at that point, were enslaved. And so um, it's really mind-boggling to learn all of this. But then then it also makes me question, well, what happened? You know, why aren't there any ice cream empires today? Why aren't there any black catering entities today? It's just astonishing how much things changed and how things came undone and how things were not sustained Um, And it's also just how times are changing and how industry is happening. And, you know, they're the briars of the world, also originated in in Philadelphia. So it's just, it's a thing that, yeah, people just get put out of business. 
you know, um, there's also some research that suggests that they were turned away. People who had attempted to work for the, the now manufacturing ice cream companies were kind of somehow categorized as unskilled laborers. They weren't trained how to flip switches in a factory. I don't know. Hmm. But <laughs> so what, what about this story really surprised you or excited you or depressed you? I mean, I, I mean it's <laughs> an interesting story. Um, you know, it's not surprising that, that these people were so good at what they did. Right. But, but in the historical context, what, what's surprising to you? That they basically are the foundation of the American ice cream industry. Mm. I That just blows me away sometimes. Like, it's just ice cream's not something, even me, most of us associate with a, an African heritage thing. Right. But all roads led to that being the thing here, you know, that African heritage people would be the ones to kind of really develop it. And uh, many other food categories with similar patterned stories. You know, you've got companies like Pillsbury that have worked with a, a, a black woman cook from Texas named Lucille to come up with their biscuit recipe. Bisquick, the company, you know, that mm. idea came from a Pullman porter. You know, you have... Really? I didn't know that. Could you yeah. tell me that story? I didn't know that. Uh, did I tell you or will no, I tell no, you? No, no, would you? Yeah. <laughs> tell me. I can't, t- I I can't know. tell you now. You have to invite me back, Chris. We're talking about ice cream. <laughs> that's, that's, I don't know. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> But yeah, and so you see this thing, even the early, you know, even the fried chicken franchises, you know, many of these dishes were not even for the people who were preparing it. It wasn't until generations later, you know, for special occasions that some of the dishes become part of of an African-American culinary culture, Uh, macaroni and cheese being um, probably best example of that. But I guess the ice cream one was the first in a series for me of really understanding how integral to not just, you know, agriculture and growing and harvesting and that all kind of makes sense about the role of African-Americans in American food history. But, you know, now we're talking about, you know, industry. And and I just, I don't know, the, the optimist in me wishes that or thinks somehow, well, if people just knew, maybe we would have more gratitude for each other if we all knew how much Every group, every ethnic group contributed to these things we take for granted today. The, the, you know, maybe people would be more grateful. Maybe we would be more grateful for each other if we knew um, what everybody has, has brought to the table. So next time we'll talk about Bisquick. Okay. <laughs> Bisquick we'll move on from Pillsbury. ice cream to biscuits. Yeah, maybe we can come up with a fun recipe that involves biscuits and ice cream. A new, we can do a new twist on an ice cream sandwich or something. St- strawberry biscuits. Well, mint Ooh. biscuits. There you go. Mint biscuits. Yeah. Tanya, it's been, um, it's been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. And next time it's Bisquick. Thank you. Yes, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Chris. That was Tanya Hopkins. She originally shared this history on the podcast episode, How Philly Invented Ice Cream as We Know It, for the news website, The Philadelphia Citizen. You know, history celebrates watershed inventions. I mean, the printing press, the light bulb, the telegraph, and of course, the Wright Brothers airplane. But I always wonder about everyday items that have also changed the world. The picnic cooler did not exist until 1953. The blender was popularized by band leader Fred Waring. In fact, he loved vegetable smoothies. The Zippo lighter started manufacturing in 1933, and today they're over half a billion in existence. One of my favorites, the Super Soaker, was invented by a NASA engineer in 1989. 
1950 Hopalong Cassidy Lunchbox took an old idea and transformed the lunchbox industry. So I say let's celebrate the inventors of the small things, from ice cream scoops to sunglasses, from pop-up toasters to quick-release ski bindings. The light bulb is great, but life without a picnic cooler, that's hard to imagine. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, fresh peach and raspberry crostata. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. So I'm confused, as you know. Uh I love making pies. I've made hundreds or thousands of pies. But for most people, you know, making pies only at Thanksgiving, a two-crust pie is problematic for all sorts of reasons, including the crust, mostly the crust. So a crostata or galette, which is essentially a one-crust pie, with a relatively small amount of fruit filling usually, really solves all those problems. It's easy to do. You can't mess it up, and it's great in the summer. So why, when I make one of these, a crostata, people go, what's that, right? (laughs) And I go like, how come? Why isn't this 10 times more popular than a two-crust pie? I don't know why. Obviously, you're not hanging around with me all summer because I make these all the time in the summertime. It's a perfect way to use fresh fruit, which admittedly, in the summer, is at its best. And we not only make this easier by just doing one crust, but in this particular case, we're actually making it better than your typical pie. So because we're doing this free form, we don't have to worry as much about slumping or softening or any of those problems that are notorious with pie making. So we can add more butter to this. This is 10 tablespoons of butter to a cup of flour. That's going to make this much richer, more buttery, more flaky. All of the best parts of a pie crust are getting kind of amped up. The crust itself is super easy to make. It's all done in the food processor. Flour, sugar, and salt mixed with the butter form it into a disc and refrigerate it for about an hour. And then when we roll it out, we roll it to about an 11-inch circle, and then we sprinkle it with granulated sugar and roll it again another inch, so it's 12 inches. That's going to embed that sugar into the dough. Then we flip it over onto a baking sheet, and that becomes the bottom crust. And what that does, we put it in the oven on the lowest rack. That sugar caramelizes Mm. and becomes really nice and crisp, and it really makes for a nice crispy bottom crust, which, you know, when you're doing a fruit, based dessert often in a pastry that bottom crust can get soggy this is kind of eliminating that problem so we're making it better well the other thing you have to worry about is thickening because you're using like two cups of fruit so you don't have to worry about that it's just a little bit of sugar like a few tablespoons of sugar and a little bit of zest right that's right sugar lemon zest then we're using peaches and raspberries here Mm -hmm. you could use really any combination of peaches and berries or just all berries and we're not using any thickener. There's no spices in here, which I know you're happy about. I know you're not a fan of at least spices with apple pie. I know that much about you. And then you mix all of that together. Really critical to put that into the middle of that pastry right before you're going to put it in the oven. Otherwise, that sugar will draw out too much moisture right. and it will be soggy. goes into a really hot oven, 450, again, on the lowest rack for about 30 minutes. Yeah, I just made this recently. It is so good. And it also has a higher ratio of crust to fruit, which, uh, in my opinion, is always a good thing. I'm all for the crust. I'm all for the crust. Fresh peach and raspberry crostata or any berry crostata. Thank you, Lynn. Easier than pie and I think tastes better. You're so welcome. 
You can get the recipe for fresh peach and raspberry crostata at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman seeks out the ultimate way to eat corn and watermelon. That's after the break. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, it's time to answer some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Hello, Chris. Uh, I have a question for you. Okay. You have some friends who just called you up. They want to come over for dinner. They're in town. you got to throw something together real fast. What is it? They're not coming over. <laughs> it's not, that's just not going to happen. <sighs> no, no, I'm serious. We have two young kids. Our family does not operate last minute with two young kids. Okay. It's just, In you the know. old days, did you have a go-to? Um, yeah, I'd have cocktails. I applaud that. I mean, I, you would sit down and have wine or cocktails and then something quickly, some finger food of some kind. Quickly thrown together. Quickly thrown together. You know, something toasted with a quick spread on top or something. Yeah. But I, no, I, <laughs> hey, we're coming over for dinner in 20 minutes. I don't, <laughs> those days are gone. I know. I just can't, I can't handle that anymore. I don't have kids, so I don't know what my excuse is. I wouldn't do it either. But let's say in an imaginary world, somebody who I love happened to be in town, you know, somebody who would love me even if it wasn't like a five course meal. That's my problem with energy. I think they expect too much. But if it was somebody low expectations, I'd make a frittata. I'd go yeah, rummage that, around yeah. in the fridge, yeah, find all the leftovers, yeah. make a frittata, throw yeah. some cheese on top, or make sure there's cheese in it. I always like cheese. And uh, make a big old salad. Or, or, or a Spanish tortilla, which is a similar thing right. with potatoes. That's a good one. Eggs to the rescue. Eggs always, please. Yeah. 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 Okay, good. So are you about to call me up and say, <laughs> hey, I'm coming over for dinner. Yeah, watch out. <laughs> watch out. All right, time to take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, hello, Chris and Sarah. This is Gary from San Francisco. How are you? Oh, fine, thank you. And thank you very much for your educated podcast, and thank you very much for taking my call. Thank you. The question I have for both of you is the use of chili pepper for baking recipes. Mm-hmm. And Chris, I know you had mentioned in, in your past podcast, your favorite is a guajillo pepper for mm-hmm. savory recipes. And so I'd like to get uh, both of your suggestions for a pepper varietal for baking recipes, either where the recipe calls for black pepper as a substitute for black pepper, or just as in addition to baking spices as a flavor enhancer without adding too much heat. Give me an ex- a sample of a couple recipes you want to make. Uh, like a chocolate recipe, it could be um, in a chocolate cake, or it could be uh, any um, probably gluten-free recipe where I don't use traditional flours. I use uh, maybe an almond flour and uh, maybe chopped uh, chocolate, and so just uh, like an almond tart. Well, the one that comes to mind is Urfa pepper, which looks chocolatey. It's the sort of damp flakes. They do have sort of a chocolatey flavor to them. They're not too hot. So if you were going to cook with chocolate, that would be one of the things I'd look at. Okay. I think Aleppo pepper, or it's called uh, Turkish silk chili pepper sometimes, is a red pepper, which is fruity. It's not too hot. That would go pretty well with that. But I don't think I'd go with a really smoky pepper necessarily with that. I think it'd be overwhelming. Okay. You could also just get a sort of a milder, well, it depends on which white pepper you have. Some white peppers are pretty interesting and might go very well, a little more subtle without having a strong flavor profile, just a little bit of heat to it. Those would be a few. Okay. Uh, you would recommend those over the ancho. I don't know if it's smoked or not, but... It's a dried poblano. Yeah. I mean, the, the smoked is like a chipotle is a smoked, right? Uh, jalapeno. Smoked jalapeno. Pasilla chilies are also dark chilies. It's really up to you. You could try it. I mean, I guess the question is, do you want just some subtle heat 
in a chocolate cake, for example, or do you want to really yes. taste the smokiness of a chili, which is also fine too? Basically, just to introduce more complexity to the flavors. Fruity peppers like Aleppo is fine, Arahio. And if you want a little smokiness and depth, Ancho, Pasilla or Chipotle would give you more depth. Pasilla, so you're talking about a pure chili powder because if you're putting it in a dessert, you're going to need a chili powder. You're not going to add a chili. But Pasilla is often described as sort of chocolatey and raisiny. So to me, that would seem like the best candidate, a pure Pasilla chili powder, just adding a little bit of that. Where are you going to get Pasilla chili powder? You make your own. Yeah, okay. Grind it up. So, so I would get a dried pasilla chili and then just grind it, right? I would. So that's the only step I would need to do at home. Yeah, you'd have to chop I, it up and put it in a coffee grinder, you know, electric coffee grinder okay, or something. So I would not get a fresh one. I would get a dried one. A dry one. Yeah. yeah, it is a dry it chili. It is dried. Yeah. It's a chilaca is the fresh version and pasilla is the dried version. Okay, got it. So just to sum it up, uh, you know, Chris and Sarah, is just either the Urfa fever or the Aleppo pepper, and then coming to the Americas, it would be like the Ancho, Guajillo, yeah. the CS, or as you indicated, right? So one of those. Okay, got it. Okay. Yeah. I think that's most helpful. Thank you ever so much. Really appreciate it. All right, great. Thanks for calling. Well, we're rooting Thank you. for you. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Chris. Thank okay, you. bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Sarah and I are here to save you from culinary disaster. Just give us a ring anytime. Our number, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855 426 9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Pam calling from Grayling, Michigan. How can we help you? Well, um, growing up in Michigan, there used to be a commercial bakery called Saunders, and they were known for several things. They made hot fudge for Sundays, and they made a cake called Bumpy Cake. But they also wait, 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 wait. What's that cake? (laughs) What's that? Bumpy cake. What is it? Well, it's a chocolate cake, and then it has piped tubes of some kind of cream frosting, and then covered it all over in chocolate. So you have the bumps with the white filling and the chocolate frosting. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds good. It's quite good. Okay. But what I'd like to do is make cream puffs like they made them. They were like the size of a baseball and fairly firm and darker brown. And they were definitely pot of choux, but they're not like, you know, regular cream puffs that you put pastry cream in. They're definitely firmer. Well, two things. Use nonfat milk instead of milk uh, or water Ah. instead of milk. That'll give you crispier. You could, you know, switch to an egg white instead of one of the whole eggs. Okay. Or turn the oven off, prop the door open, and let them sit in there until they dry out. That's the other thing. So I think it's a question of leaner shoe paste or more baking time to let them dry out very slowly in the oven. Another thing that people do with pot with cream puffs is nick it with a knife, then put it back in, let the steam out that's in the middle of it, which will help to dry it out a bit okay. too. You could do that, you know, once they're brown and then you want to keep cooking them. I agree with everything else Chris said, though, in terms of making it a leaner dough. I have one other brilliant suggestion. Brilliant. Okay, go. You know, a convection oven, Ah. that would be the thing to do because convection will dry out that shell. Mm -hmm. So if you have a convection mode, which just means two little tiny fans. Yeah, do convection and just cook them a little longer. Yeah, Yeah. get that nice brown color. Anyway, Pam, please report back. Let us know how it goes. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay. Bumpy cake. Thank you.
<laughs> Bye. Bye. Oh, I want Bumpy Cake. What a great name. <laughs> Did you just revert to five years old? Cake makes me happy. <laughs> okay, another call. All right. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Gabrielle calling from Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, Gabrielle. How can I help you? How can we hey, help you? So... I shouldn't make it sound like I'm here <laughs> Gee, alone. thanks a lot. Yeah, um, yeah, that other guy. Just ignore him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's great to talk to you, both of you. Um, my partner and I have become a little bit interested in wine specifically pairing wine with food, but we're not really big drinkers otherwise. So maybe we'll buy a bottle of wine one week to go with something that we're making. And then we've got half a bottle sitting around in the fridge for a day or two. And sometimes it gets finished the next day and sometimes it doesn't. I guess my first question is, what are some ways that I can use this leftover wine for cooking purposes? And a sort of follow-up question is, what are some strategies for storing wine that will increase its longevity? I'm going to start very briefly with the storing wine one, because that's pretty easy. White wine refrigerated will stay fine for a week. We use this thing at home called a vacuvin, Mm -hmm. V-A-C-U-V-I-N. Air is the enemy here. The vacuvin sucks out the air. In terms of what you can do with it, you could do chicken in white wine. You could do poached fish in wine. You could poach any meat in wine, red or white. Poached pears in wine are fantastic. Obviously, you add sugar Mm -hmm. to that. You can also turn wine, leftover wine, into its summertime. Hey, how about some sangria? Add Ah. some fruit and some brandy, a little bit of sugar. Or you could just do a spritzer, you know, with some wine and some seltzer. That's very nice with white wine in particular. Or in the winter, there's mulled wine. But at any rate, what you can also do is to freeze it in ice cube trays and keep it in a loose bag in the fridge. And then when you need wine for a recipe, it's there. You could make a butter sauce, which is a French thing. You reduce white wine and shallots until it's almost dry and then whisk in some cold butter and you boom, you got a sauce for fish. Okay, Chris? Do you have enough time now? That's, is that, <laughs> I have to go to bed now. Uh, we're done. Um, well, first of all, let's address the issue of why you have leftover wine. Yeah, well, yeah. So in my household, um, <laughs> the only time there's leftover wine if only one of us is drinking. And the vacuum van is the best answer. I will, however, comment that in my experience, I agree with pears and some other things, fish, with meat in particular, cooking meat and wine, chicken included, I think is a bad idea. The meat gets desiccated. It loses flavor. I find that reducing the wine down first, reduce it down. Then you could put in ice cream trays and freeze it, and then you have a reduction. So if you had a cup of wine, you might end up with two or three tablespoons by the time you're done. That's great, and you can add that towards the end of cooking. But really, what you should do the next night is to drink the rest. Just drink the rest, yeah. That's right. Okay. That's absolutely <laughs> Or by have far. some friends over. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like... Or make uh, sangria and have a party. Well, thank you. I love those ideas, especially the sangria with summer yeah. in Georgia. Oh. I think that will be a go-to. Peach. Oh, peach is in there. Yum, yum. Oh, yes. One quick follow-up is what do you think about making vinegar? Is that a time-consuming process? No, you... Um, what I've done is you get a crock, you start uh, with leftover wine, you just keep pouring it in, and it takes about two months. You can either start with a base of vinegar, unpasteurized vinegar, and then add a bunch of red wine or white wine to it, 
Or you can start with a mother. You can start with that. I just start with vinegar and then just keep adding wine as you go along, just topping it up, and that's great. That's a great yeah. idea. That's, actually, okay, so that's you, actually the best idea, yeah. Okay, so you can continuously add yes. wine to it. It doesn't need to be all in one batch. Yeah, it's like sourdough. You keep feeding it. And by the way, that's much better than most of the bottled vinegar you get. It's pretty good. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. good idea. All right, Gabrielle. There Thank you. Go. you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan. Thanks. Thank okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, it's culinary troublemaker, Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. I'm enjoying some hot summer weather. It's eat outdoors time, and it's corn and watermelon time. Okay, yeah. And I think we should be a little more thoughtful about how we serve these two foods, Chris. Okay. Here's the issue with the watermelon. A lot of people are slicing their watermelon wedges too wide. The angle at the tip should not be a 90-degree angle. Okay. The, the wedge is the best way to serve it in the summer because you just slice them up, you throw them on a platter, the kids can grab them, everyone can walk by and grab them. You don't, need to, don't, don't start cubing them and serving them with toothpicks. You know, it's, it's, it's summertime. <laughs> but the wedge should not be so wide that when you bite into it, it gets all over your cheeks. <laughs> Have you determined the exact angle? Um, I would say uh, 30 to 33 degrees <laughs> angle. It should be pretty acute. The watermelon wedges should be smaller. Too many watermelon wedges in this world are too large. Okay. And I'm here to speak out against those wedges. This reminds me of my early geometry classes. Like, acute angles are a thing, right? Yes, acute angles are smaller than 90 degrees, and obtuse angles larger than 90 degrees. 90 degrees is a right angle, and we need acute angles in our watermelon wedges because then it doesn't smear all over your face. See, you didn't think you'd learn about geometry when you tuned into Milk Street Radio today, but here we are. I mean, I, I would say that smearing watermelon over your face is kind of consistent with eating watermelon in hot weather. But but it doesn't have to be. I mean, like... That's true. You know, when, when you were growing up, Chris, you're telling me that uh, your mom was cool with it you know, when you were running around the backyard of Vermont in your knickers <laughs> and uh, you, you had watermelon over your face. That was okay? No, you are probably sent straight to the washroom. To be honest, I was in the woods with my 22 all day. <laughs> and I came back at 6 o'clock for dinner. So I don't think she was worried about watermelon on my face. <laughs> Let's just put that to rest. Okay. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that's a fair point. Okay. Yeah, that's a fair point. Now, now, as for corn, you know, there's a lot of romanticism around this idea of corn on the cob. Oh, no. But, yeah. Oh, you're, you're not going to take the kernels off the cob, are you? Chris. Oh, here we go. It's the best way to do it. Oh, Lord. Here's the problem with corn on the cob. First of all, you bite up and down the cob, you know, typewriter yeah. style, and half of the corn gets stuck in your teeth. And half of it stays on the cob. No, you need remedial <laughs> corn eating. I used to grow my own corn for many years. Uh, I'm not surprised. So during the season, August, mid-August, we go out and pick. And, and I'd eat like eight ears, and that was it for dinner. That's all I had for dinner. Right. So we'd, we'd boil up a bunch of corn, freshly picked, put it on a huge platter. Yes, I put butter on it. Yes, I salted it. And there's nothing left. The, the whole joy of it is getting every single kernel off, which takes some time and attention. So uh, leaving kernels on? No. Look, I, I'll grant you that it's fun to eat it that way. But it I, is fun. I just feel yeah. like I, it gets stuck in my teeth and then I, there's a lot left there. And also, if you remove the kernels, you can then mix the kernels with all different kinds of seasonings that make the corn more interesting and exciting to eat. So here's the Kimball family. 
butter all over their faces, corn kernels all over their hands, the table a complete mess. Right. And and then there's the Pashman family with dainty little silver <laughs> spoons. That's us, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and nice little china bowls eating corn kernels. We only dress in our formal wear for all of our barbecues. <laughs> White tie <laughs> corn off the cob. That's right. Only our finest. So, are you mixing the corn with what mayo? What, what are you putting in? I don't know. I wouldn't do mayo. I, I would. I would love like some a crumbled, dry, salty cheese, a feta cheese. You uh, could do a cotija. Yeah. Um. You know, maybe you you uh, slice up some cherry tomatoes and mix them in there. Avocado and scallions. Okay. I even saw a great looking recipe for corn kernels in a in a cookbook that I picked up called Milk Street: The World in a Skillet. That's a cheap shot. <laughs> Using my own recipe against me. But this looks great, Chris. Sautéed corn with miso, butter, and scallions. This is a fantastic looking dish. I can't wait to cook this. Look, I, I make a great pasta dish with corn and cherry tomatoes. I think corn off the cob is a great ingredient. Okay. But at the height of the season when the corn's just perfectly sweet and just picked, there is a ritual called corn on the cob, which, which I think is it's a family event. It's an exercise. It's a... You know, it's a sport. All right, so uh, I'll compromise with you on this one. Okay. Corn on the cob, one month a year, off the cob, the other 11 months. Well, we could argue about how many, <laughs> but okay, fair enough. I mean, th- they're both okay. Right. Now, what's that device I used in geometry class to measure angles? A protractor. A protractor. I need a protractor to get my 30 to 33 degrees on the watermelon slice, right? That's right. Yeah, why don't you sell those in the Milk Street store? Watermelon protractors. Dan, thank you for another protracted segment. Uh, <laughs> Here on Milk Street. <laughs> Take care. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> that was Dan Pashman. He's the host of the Sporkful podcast, also inventor of the pasta shape, Coscatelli. That's it for today. We have over 200 episodes of Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, MilkStreetRadio.com, or wherever you find your podcasts. To explore Milk Street and everything we have to offer, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download our recipes, watch our TV show, or explore our online store. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and cooking questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.